Good morning, good morning, good morning. You have entered into the Morning Black, building leaders and cultural knowledge. I'm your host, Greg Jones, and we're going to spend another provocative hour talking about the issues that are impactful of the African-American community and communities of color, both here in Valparaiso and in the nation and around the world. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is uh, Easter weekend. I know a lot of people are solemnly thinking about what this day means and, and celebratory of the day to come. But we want to share some information this morning about what's going on in and around the world. Um, yes, this is WVLP 103.1 on your FM dial. We also stream live WVLP 103.1 FM org. You can find us on the internet and stream live if you so choose. Well, one of the first things I want to share with you this morning, no, I don't know if you've been following what's been going on. A good friend of mine, Chuck Schaefer, has been uh, weeping and lamenting of late because his home, Ethiopia, has been in a civil war conflict. And uh, there's been some you know, devastating things going on in Ethiopia. I know, I know, I know, I know this is the United States and we don't really think about other people um, going through conflicts. We think about conflicts in relationship to our own interests. And so we don't spend a lot of time talking about what's going on with other folk. But, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, uh, even though we've been visited with pandemic, you know, the global community been dealing with pandemic for a minute. You know, they've been having pandemics um, nonstop for a while. So, I mean, you know, uh, it depends on where you live, I guess, on whether or not it, uh, it's, it's something that, you know, is new to you. But we're not talking about pandemics uh, in terms of the virus form this morning. What we're talking about in terms of Ethiopia is a lot of violent stuff that's going on among its people. And so I wanted to share this story with you because uh, this there's a video that has arisen in terms of uh, uh, some some mass killing, a massacre in Tigray. That's spelled T-I-G-R-A-Y. Yeah, Tigray, Tigray. There's a, you know, important kind of thing that's been going on in Tigray. And I wanted to share a little information with you in regards to that. Uh, this is a story uh, taken from a, a local a village in Tigray. Daiwat was watching television at a relative's one-room apartment in Aksum, a historic city in Ethiopia's war-torn northern Tigray region, in early March when a news bulletin flashed upon the screen. Graphic and unverified footage had surfaced of a mass killing near Daiwat's hometown of Mahaberi, Dago, in a mountainous area of central Tigray. In the shaky video, Ethiopian soldiers appeared to round up a group of young unarmed men on a wind-swept, dusty ledge before shooting them at point-blank range, picking them up by an arm or a leg and flinging or kicking their bodies off a rocky hillside like rag dolls. The soldiers can be heard in the footage urging one another not to waste bullets to use the minimum amount needed to kill and to make sure none of the group were left alive. 
They also appeared to cheer each other on, praising the killings as his heroic and in hurtling insults at the men in their captivity. Dawit said he believes one of the men in the video broadcast on a Despora television statement in Tigray Media House was his younger brother, Alula. CNN has changed the names of both brothers for Dawit's safety. The, the mass killing near Mahabre Dago is one of several to have been reported over the course of Ethiopia's five-month-old conflict during which thousands of civilians have been believed to have been killed, raped, and abused. But with independent access to journalists severely restricted until recently and telephone and Internet services often blocked, it has been challenging to verify accounts of atrocities in Tigray. Amid the effective communications blackout, few videos have emerged from the fighting, and those that have are difficult to authenticate. Through a forensic frame-by-frame investigation of the video footage, corroborated by analysis from Amnesty International's digital verification and modeling experts, as well as interviews with 10 family members and local residents, CNN has established that men wearing Ethiopian army uniforms executed a group of at least 11 unarmed men before disposing their bodies near Mahabre Dago. Dawit said he last saw his 23-year-old brother in the same clothes he's seen wearing in the video at their mother's house at uh, Mahabre Dago on January 15th. The video is not time-stamped, and CNN does not have the original raw footage to examine the files, media the data, but it is likely the video was filmed that same day. Dawet uh, was out in the fields looking after his cattle when he said Ethiopian soldiers arrived in the town and went door-to-door dragging young men, including his brother, from their homes. The troops shot at him, and Dawet said he ran into the bush to escape breaking his leg as he scrambled down a rocky path. Later, he said he could hear gunfire in the distance and then silence until he watched the video. He said he had no idea what had happened to his brother, but even after watching the footage countless times, Dawit said he is still holding out hope that Alula is alive. CNN is not able to independently verify that Alula is pictured in the footage, and the man that Dawit identifies as his brother is not identifiable among the dead. Since we didn't see his body with our own eyes and bury our brother ourselves, it's hard for us to believe he's dead. It feels like he's still alive. We can't accept his death, and we'll always remember him. After the attack, Dawit fled Mahbere Dago with his two teenage siblings, limping 12 miles to their eldest brother's home in Axiom. Hundreds of other residents displaced from the town and surrounding area are now sleeping rough in the city streets. Dawit said the only people left in the town are those too elderly to make the trek, including his own mother. She doesn't have Internet access or satellite TV, so she doesn't see he she hasn't seen the gruesome video. Dawit has spoken to her over the phone. Telephone networks in Mahabere Dago have been intermittent, but he isn't he hasn't mentioned the footage for now. He said it's easier that way. Ethiopia is facing a raft of intense scrutiny over human rights violations that may amount to war crimes in its Tigray region. Thousands of civilians are believed to have been killed since November when Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed launched a major military operation against Tigray's ruling party, the Tigray People's Liberation. 
sending in national troops and militia fighters from Ethiopia's Amhara region. CNN has previously compiled extensive eyewitness testimony that soldiers from neighboring Ethiopia had crossed into Tigray and were perpetrating massacres, extrajudicial killings, sexual violence, and other abuses. The state-appointed Ethiopian Human Rights Commission last week said its investigations found preliminary evidence that more than 100 people in Axiom were killed by Ethiopian soldiers in November, confirming that early reports by Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. In late March, Marcini Sans Frontera says his staffers had witnessed Ethiopian soldiers drag several men off of public buses and execute them near the Tigray capital, McKelly. Abby said last week his government would hold accountable any soldier found responsible for committing atrocities in a Tigray, acknowledging for the first time that Ethiopian soldiers were fighting alongside Ethiopian forces and that they would withdraw from border areas. It is not clear whether Ethiopian forces have pulled out Tigray, pulled out of Tigray. The Ethiopian um, embassy of the UK and Ireland responded to CNN's repeated request for comment on March 22, denying allegations of wrongdoing by Ethiopian soldiers and denying that Ethiopian troops were in Ethiopia. For months, both countries denied the Ethiopian troops were in the war-torn region, insisted no civilians had been killed in the conflict, contradicting accounts from residents, refugees, aid agencies, diplomats, and Ethiopian civilian uh, officials. If the soldiers of the Mahaberi Dago video are indeed Ethiopian National Defense Forces, then it may be the first visual evidence of Ethiopia's involvement in war crimes. Wow. Yeah. So that region is being impacted by what we would call human rights violations. You know, we talk about that kind of stuff all the time. But we rarely recognize that, you know, that's something that, you know, that's going on around the world in a kind of almost semi-normal to normal kind of way where we see, you know, conflicts taking place locally. And, you know, you you have to look at Chuck Schaefer's face to see what it really means because, you know, Chuck used to tell me he used to ride up and down the roads in Ethiopia. His his parents were like missionaries. And so, you know, he he enjoys he enjoyed Ethiopia as his home for many, many years. And so when this kind of thing happens, you have to look at people who have vested interests or have a stake in the game and see how they are really, you know, really being reacting to this kind of stuff. But for the most part, you know, when we talk about, you know, conflicts, we think on the local side, we don't necessarily think that, you know, there's conflict going on around the world. Um, and you think about Indonesia, you think about, you know, some of the other things that are going on in uh, Hong Kong and other places, and we think, wow, you know, they're not dealing with it like we're dealing with it. But in reality, the world, the global community, is in conflict, you know, um, and it's very difficult not to find places struggling under uh, various, uh, uh, various notions of pandemic. And so we see this happening in uh, Ethiopia. So we want to, you know, um, keep ourselves informed and, and be able to, you know, respond to, you know, what's going on. Why, why this is particularly egregious um, 
is uh, because the footage, the raw footage, was filmed by the soldiers as they were killing these people. And uh, that footage has reached, uh, reached social media. And so, um, you know, this, this, this is becoming something that, you know, the world is starting to, to know about. Uh, you know, they're, they're willing to d- develop an open will for independent investigations to be undertaken, finally in the Tigray region. So the footage was initially broadcast in early March. Uh, and then it was put on a satellite TV and YouTube channel based in the United States and has widely circulated on social media in the weeks since. So social media has kind of boosted uh, this concern about this particular region in Ethiopia. So wanted you to be aware of that and, you know, pray for our brothers and sisters in, in the Tigray region who is basically being slaughtered. Yeah, and you know we don't hear stuff like that. You know, there's other things we don't hear either. You know, like uh, you know, I, I was looking at some information the other day about uh, sex trafficking, and and found out that there is a uh, group of women missing on the border. You know, um, there's a lot of women being snatched up and kidnapped on the border, uh, both teenage and adult, and. Uh, you know, we don't we you, 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 we haven't gotten to the place where we want to talk about the immigration on, on that level yet. There are some people uh, who are willing to talk about that, but, you know, not many. You're listening to WVLP 103.1 on your FM dial. And I'm your host for Morning Black, building leaders in cultural knowledge. Did you all know that tomorrow, April 4th, is a. Um, Easter, but it's also a day, you know, that we kind of uh, acknowledge in infamy. You know, uh, April 4th, if I can recollect, was the day that Martin Luther King, yeah, yeah, April 4th, 1968. I don't know if you all remember that. I mean, you know, some of you all. I mean, you know, I think, you know, we talk about Martin Luther King um, a lot. And most of the time what we do is we lift up, you know, the important aspects of King holiday and stuff like that. But we kind of sometimes we kind of forget, you know, what happened, you know. Uh, And so, um, you know, you you have to kind of remind yourself, you know, and I think it's I think it's so ironic that, you know, we, you know, that April 4th. I think today is April 3rd and uh, April 4th, 1968, just after 6 p.m., Martin Luther King was fatally shot while standing on the balcony outside his second story room at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. You know, are you are you aware of that? Yeah. You know, Dr. King was killed you know the civil rights leader was in memphis to support a sanitation worker strike and was on his way to dinner when a bullet struck him in the jaw and severed his spinal cord king was pronounced dead after he was he arrived at the memphis hospital he was 39 years old wow you know before 
Right before his assassination, Martin Luther King Jr. became increasingly concerned with the problem of economic inequality in America. He organized a poor people's campaign to focus on the issue. Although he really didn't organize it, he was basically, who organized it was a, a, a guy by the name of Bernard Rustin. And uh, <laughs> the interesting thing about Bernard was, you know, he was like gay. And so they weren't dealing with gay guys like that back then so you know like they everybody knew he was gay but didn't nobody say anything you know and uh Bernard but he didn't pay attention to any of that he went on and did his work kudos to uh Rustin Bernard yeah helping out with the uh poor people's campaign you know so we we often have to you know give credit where credit's due you know and uh you know, they were prejudiced back then like they're prejudiced today in terms of gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual, queer folk. But, you know, kudos to the, those brothers and sisters. They kept on working, kept on trying to do what was just and right. So, you know, Bernard was part of that, uh, including uh, March on Washington. And uh, so King travels to, in March in 1968, traveled to Memphis to support a poorly treated African-American sanitation workers group. Um, he led a protest on the 28th of March and then, uh, you know, uh, and the reason why he did that is because there was, a, there was a teenager that was killed. King left the city but vowed to return in early April to lead another demonstration so he ended up on April 3rd back in Memphis. King gave his last sermon saying, we got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. And I might not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to a promised land. Now, 24 hours after speaking those words, he was shot and killed, you know, you know, and uh, the question I, I would want to ask you, do you remember what you was doing when you found that out? Can you remember where you was at when you found that out? I remember, yeah, I remember being outside playing or kind of playing, you know, is that 68? Yeah, yeah, right. And uh, I remember my mom being all upset and my sister crying. And I remember people, you know, like weeping and wailing and stuff, you know. I wasn't a big, King fan. I had already did my crying for Malcolm X. And I had I was pretty hardened by then. And I was in uh I was in high school and I remember the next day we went to school and we decided we was gonna watch him walk out. So we didn't go to class and there was some rioting that was taking place. You know, we began to tear up stuff. And um, shortly during those days and during that summer, um, the old um, Richard Richard J. Daly, you know, era where the Daddy Daly, you know, basically put orders to shoot to kill, 
on all rioters who were, you know, tearing up businesses and stuff. And I remember, I actually remember um, being in a march at uh, Limbloom High School during that time. And we marched up to 63rd Street and then people started to tear up stuff. You know, as they marched, they marched west to east on 63rd Street. And they broke into several shops and stuff like that. It was a crazy time. It was a crazy time. I mean, you know, a lot of people got hurt. A lot of people went through, you know, changes during that particular time. Um, wow. I mean, you know, uh, one report, you know, gave a lot of information about how King was dealt with, you know. Riots broke out in cities all across the United States and National Guard troops were deployed in Memphis and Washington, D.C. And on April 9th, King was laid to rest in his hometown. Tens of thousands of people lined the streets to pay tribute to King's casket and passed in a wooden farm cart drawn box by two mules. Wow. He shot with a 30-odd six. That's a serious gun. Yep. So, I mean, you know, um, and and later on, there was a lot of uh, conspiracy theories. You know, there's a lot of conspiracies talking about, you know, the the uh, connection between King and uh, some some people who had put contracts out on him, as well as there was some uh, conspiracy theory in relationship to the government being aware and 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 had some complicit or participation in that. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on during that particular time. You Imagine trying to go to high school, <laughs> trying to get to class when all that's going on that summer. So, you know, we lost, we lost a couple of years, you know, um, that 68 was a rough year for, for, for education because people weren't in class and people just were fed up with the kinds of, um, you know, murder that was taking place. And that's what I, I tell, try to tell people all the time. I say, well, you know, folks will be talking about, well, you know, let's, let's do, you know, we need to get organized to deal with it. I say, you know, like black people have been dealing with this stuff for a very long time, folks. I mean, you know, this, you know, police brutality and the kind of stuff that we are seeing, you know, uh, that's going on today, you know, it's going on in the African-American community and communities of color you know, Latino community, you know, for a very, very long time. And so people, you know, uh, as as Bill Hooks would say, I think there's a mental health issues are taking place, you know. And the reason why I would say that is because just the pressure of white supremacy, dealing with people, you know, and dealing with the, you know, the kind of resonated and kind of consistent drone of, of the kind of attitudes that white supremacist philosophy has it's taking its toll on uh communities of color and so we have to recognize that as well and so you know i'm often confronted by my allies and community and and, and brothers and sisters who want to do things in the community and you know they they want to be efficient and productive and they you know they're like okay let's get going and i'm like you know you don't understand see you know folks are operating under a significant amount of pressure 
you know, and uh, they're, they're being pressured by the very things that you are saying is going to be uh, solutions to their problem. And if you don't get that, then, you know, you run into you run into the things that you're unfamiliar with, like people saying, you know what, I don't just feel like dealing with you today, <laughs> you know, because, you know, I'm just not in the, the mood to deal with that. And that's because people basically are dealing with, you know, this this incessant um, stress of dealing with, you know, issues of disparity. I was talking to a brother the other day about that. And he was saying, I don't get it, man. You know, you know, I did everything I was supposed to do and it's still not stuff's still not working. He was talking about several things, education. He was talking about economics and things of that nature. And he says, and some people look like they don't have any pressure at all. And I said, absolutely right. I said, do you understand why that is? And, <laughs> and he's, he said, oh, he said, it can't be. I said, oh, yeah. I said, and he said, in 2021, I said, oh, absolutely. And I said, it had nothing to do with, you know, the century has to do it with a systematic um, ability to avoid the uh, kinds of things that hinder equity, you know, and some people are privileged to not have to deal with the, the, the inequities that are function in culture and society. And that's why we do this program because we try to con- we're trying to maintain a platform so that people can, you know, have some detox, uh, to the kinds of issues that are going on in American culture, American society. But, you know, I think it's very difficult for people to make the connection to, say, the Civil War in Ethiopia and Martin Luther King being murdered and the little boy uh, Noah Green in the Capitol attack. You know, you know who that is, right? That's the little brother that basically... Uh, drove his car up, killed a police officer, injured another one, and it was killed himself. Um, I think it was yesterday. And, you know, I was listening to some reports on that, and they were saying, another attack on the Capitol. And I'm like, okay, now that's one guy. We're not talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. We're just talking about one guy. Okay, so even though what he did was just as egregious and there was life loss, you know, you can't like make what he did be the same of what happened on January the 6th. You know, those are, those are two different things that happened there. And I don't think it was the same intent. If you listen to the conversations that led up to his actions, clearly he was going through some changes in relationship to, you know, mental health issues. Not to say that January 6th wasn't a mental health issue as well, um, collectively, but he was he was thinking some different things, you know. So, but it was difficult for people, you know, w- w- what media does, what so especially mass media does. They, you know, they're lumping for the ratings, you know. So, you know, that's the, what I'm talking about in terms of sy- systemic oppression, or systemic issues, is you know. Uh, in many respects, you know, the kinds of systems that are in play uh, are uh, benefit people doing what they already historically have been doing. 
And even though folks are trying to give people, I don't think everybody in the media is thinking conspiratorial in that regard. I think what happens is those systems, you know, operate independently of how people think about those things. And so, um, and it's very difficult for the masses of people to, to discern the differences in, in, and the nuances inside of that. You're listening to WVLP 103.1 on your FM dial. This is Morning Black. Yeah, so, yeah, um, talking, moving from uh, the the recent information I gave you about the Central Tigray massacre and um, tomorrow, which is the anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, as well as, you know, the Noah Green, you know, kind of thing, you know, where we see a young African-American brother, you know, involved in, you know, some drama at the Capitol. Um, black people are going through a lot, you know, black people are going through a lot, dealing with a lot. And we want to always be encouraged uh, to say that that community is resilient and uh, strong and able to get through what they need to get through. I want to um, just play a tribute to um, our brothers and sisters on the international scene as we uh, continue to talk about, you know, how the pandemics of um, gun conflict and uh, viral conflicts and inequity and disparity continue to impact us. I'm going to play a little something from uh, a Mali tape just to, to, to acknowledge our African brothers and some of the issues they deal with. So. This is called Gambi.
WVLP 103.1 on your FM dial. Yes, so we were going to do in this segment a spotlight on a book called Stolen Legacy. Stolen Legacy by a guy by the name of George G.M. James. George G.M. James. A lot of people don't know about these kinds of books. These books come from basically Third World Press. Uh, you hear, heard me mention him several times, Haki Matabuti. He's the publisher, the main publisher and founder of Third World Press. Uh, it's up on 76th Street in uh, Chicago, Illinois. You know, it's, uh, this is a black bookstore, Third World Press. And a lot of times people are not aware that, you know, African Americans have been writing a long time. You know, I used to ask that question about Valparaiso University. Why well, come you don't use black authors more? And they said, well, you know, there's not that many. And I'm saying, oh, okay. And then, <laughs> and then when I look in the global community, I see, you know, black black doctors and black chemists and black, you know, engineers, and they are producing works and sharing works all over the country, all over the global community, but somehow they can't make their way to Valparaiso University bookstore. But, you know, go figure. Well, anyway, George James is a fantastic kind of uh, guy. He's a historian, you know. Um, so I'm going to give you a little information because we want, we want to do on uh, Morning Black, Building Leaders and Cultural Knowledge, is to share our book knowledge with one another. George Granfield Mona James was born November the 9th, 1893, and he died June 30th, 1956. He was a Guyanese-American historian and author known for his 1954 book, Stolen Legacy, which argues that Greek philosophy and religion originated in ancient Kemet, or what you know as ancient Egypt. You know, the original name of Egypt was Kemet before people came over and just renamed. I guess we're going to do that in Mars, too. We're going to show up if we see Martian <laughs> if we see Martian architecture and stuff, we'll just rename it, you know, after, you know, 
somebody famous, you know, the Gates, the Gates Mountains or something like that, or, you know, Trump Tower or whatever, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll rename, you know, the civilizations. Well, that's what happened uh, from George Granville Mona James' perspective. James was born in Georgetown, Guyana. His parents were Reverend Lynch B. and Margaret E. James. George earned uh, bachelor's and master's degrees at Durham University in England and gained his doctorate uh, at Columbia University in New York. He was professor of logic and Greek at Livingstone College in Salisbury, North Carolina, before working at Arkansas A.M. and N. College in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. James died soon after publishing Stolen Legacy in 1954. Oh, he was a Freemason and was associated with the Prince Hall Freemasonry, which, you know, I've done some study on, you know. James was the author of the widely circulated Stolen Legacy. The Greeks were not the authors of Greek philosophy, but the people of North Africa, commonly called the Egyptians, also known as Stolen Legacy. Greek philosophy is Stolen Egyptian philosophy, first published in 1954. In this book, James claims that, among other things, the ancient Greeks were not the original authors of Greek philosophy, which he argues was mainly based on ideas and concepts that were borrowed without acknowledgement or indeed stolen from the ancient Egyptians. He argues that Alexander the Great, quote, invaded Egypt and captured the royal library of Alexandria and plundered it, that Aristotle's ideas came from these stolen books, and that he established his school within the library. The book draws on the writings of uh, Freemasonry to support his claim that Greco-Roman mystery religion originates from an Egyptian mystery system. That makes sense. James invokes Greek sources such as Herodotus, who described the cultural depth of Greek to Egypt. He also mentions prominent Greek philosophers such as Pythagoras and Plato, who said to have studied in Egypt. And he attributes Democritus's use of the term Adam, invisible pargol, to the Egyptian deity Atum, which symbolizes completeness and indivisibility. Uh, it was a very controversial book that he wrote. I mean, this book, I remember this book in high, in high school. We would, we would see books coming out of uh, Third World Press, early works uh, coming out of Third World Press. And, you know, the way that the public responded to black publishing companies and, and black work during that particular time was basically, uh, it was basically, you know, not legit. Basically, you know, these brothers and sisters were writing and they had skills, but clearly this isn't mainstream information. That's how it was touted. But in the African-American community, we had something called the Topographical Center. And in the Topographical Center, you could go, it wasn't a library. Basically, these were, were centers within the African-American community where you could go, and they were like reading rooms. And you would go in and you would read different works that ordinarily wouldn't be in the library. That's where I got my first exposure to black literature was in the topographical centers. And a lot of those centers were set up by people like the Black Panther Party and, you know, other individuals who were in the community who were doing trying to get the people to become conscious about their own culture and their own resources. And so um, one of the first books I saw at the, in, in those topographical centers was a book that was widely circulated was Stolen Legacy. Uh, by George James. The other one that I, I remember very, very clearly was uh, The Destruction of Black Civilization. And uh, 
you know, that was written by Chancellor Williams. And basically he was an archaeologist. And basically he talked about how um, the topography uh, and the changes of Africa induced the kinds of invasions we saw taking place early on in Africa. That as the as the, the desert would encroach on um, uh, arable land, people would follow the arable land. In other words, the, the migrations of people moved toward where you could grow stuff or where stuff was being grown or where vegetation was and, and where animals kind of went, you know, to grass and feed and things of that nature. So, um, you know, uh, he was a very important. He went, actually went blind uh, doing archaeology, providing archaeological evidence that uh, African-American civilization or uh, African-American civilization was based on uh, early African civilizations out of a book called uh, The Destruction of Black Civilization. Another one that I would, would say was noteworthy that you might, if you were interested in knowing some of this stuff, is um, a book by Jacob Carruthers called um, Intellectual Warfare. In that particular book, he, he does an excellent job at uh, showing the psychological foundations of the kinds of conflicts we see in communities of color, particularly African-American communities, and what's going on in terms of the, the, the white supremacist mindset, you know, how uh, they differ and how uh, impactful that has been in terms of the kinds of conflicts we still, still see today in those communities. But Stolen Legacy um, Theses was one in which we dealt with uh, very early on. And, you know, people people claimed it. Um, some African-American people claimed it. Other African-American people said it was controversial. Um, one response is like Stolen Legacy and its theses have been controversial since the book was published. Ronald B. Livingston dismissed the book in a 1955 review, writing that only social psychologists and collectors of paradoxes will find here just for their meals and presenting some of James' claims as the self-evidently ridiculous. William Leo Hansberry in 1955 wrote in support of the book's key premises, included, including the conclusion that in view of the remarkable similarities between the basic ideas and concepts as expressed in the Egyptian inscriptions and in the writings and teachings of the Greek philosophers, it might be very reasonably assumed that it was from the Egyptian priests and teachers with whom the Greeks associated during their travels in Egypt that they acquired many, if not most, of the philosophical concepts, which they, without mentioning their origin, subsequently passed off as their own and for which they have been so long and so unjustly renowned. Hansberry was killing him, you know. <laughs> he acknowledged that the book might contain some errors and would upset Helenopophilus, but pointed to the work of established historians such as James E. Preston in support of the theory of Egyptian influence on Hellenistic culture. Yeah, so Stolen Legacy was a Strongly influenced the Afrocentric school of history, including leading exponents such as Aza Hillard, Joseph Ben Johanna, and Molife uh, Kite Asante, who, by the way, is speaking next week. Uh, Molife Kite Asante will be at Valparaiso University and is their keynote or convocation uh, speaker for the MLK on, I believe, April the 7th. So don't you all miss that. That's going to be an exciting talk that that individual will give because he's world renowned written you know many many books on this particular issue and I'm I have to give uh Byron Martin <laughs> kudos for bringing that brother in to speak on 
the issues of the day because he's going to I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's going to keep it 100 and help us understand what we need to be doing in order to understand the legacies uh, impact on the kinds of issues that we need to continue to think about. Yeah. Yeah. So stolen legacy, you know, these kinds of books were important uh, to the African-American community early on in the uh, during that time where King was getting killed and Malcolm was getting killed. Mega Evers was getting killed and, and Fred Hampton and Mark Clark and uh, uh, Spurgeon Jake Winters and um, a lot of individuals were being hurt and incarcerated, you know, through bl- uh, police brutality and stuff. A lot of during that particular time, culturally, people were trying to uh, negate who we were as a community and destroy our identity. And so these books kind of were the lifeline for the cultural continuity to remain intact in the African-American community. I remember uh, going to the school. I remember actually uh, I had to transfer because of the riots. Uh, My mother moved out of the neighborhood and moved into uh, what she felt was a safer neighborhood, but it actually wasn't. And I I started going to uh, another school called Bowen, and which basically was a multiracial school. It was basically made up of three components, poor whites, Hispanics, and African-Americans. And uh, believe it or not, you know, uh, the schools that were in basically the predominantly African-American community were a lot more peaceful than those multiracial communities at that time. There's a lot of conflict going on. And so I didn't do too much better in uh, Bowen that I did in Lindblom and Inglewood, you know, where I got my start in terms of my high school training. But Bowen did have the ability to address the multiracial issue, and we did our best to try to deal culturally with what's going on. But the, the, the lack of organization within the African-American community, even though we attempted to pull some things together, it was very difficult to do. There was a lot of resistance. And so we utilized uh, a lot of this work that we see coming out of uh, Third World Press in order to organize ourselves and and begin to address the issues that were impactful, particularly of our particular community. Yeah, it was a lot going on during that time. So so these books, you know, um, are basically what we would call foundation book there's another book um that that was a great a great text called 2000 seasons and basically it told it told the story of what happened in terms of uh africans to america in a in a poetic kind of uh apocalyptic kind of uh uh genre that was uh utilized and there are many many others if you go to the website of third world press which still exists and is still prospering today you would see a lot of these great great uh historical kinds of texts that were part of keeping the african-american community together and and that's what we don't uh, are not aware of we're not aware of the kinds of things that are going on in the African-American community that basically are the threads that keep uh, the community thriving and doing, despite all the horrific stuff that's going on. I was wondering the other day, you know, you know, they were talking about every time we talk about a shooting, for example, in the city, it, it doesn't get equated as a mass murder, even though 12 people, 14 people get shot and four die. That's still just a shooting. 
But whenever that happens and it's not in the African-American community, it's always seen as a mass, you know, shooting. And I'm saying, wow, how is that? How does one community just get, oh, well, that's just, you know, you know, some more shooting that took place last night. And I mean, I'm literally talking about, you know, something that happened 24 hours ago, you know, uh, in the African-American community, in the inner city. That seemed to be a norm that's not, you know, something that is egregious enough to say that that's a mass, that's a mass shooting, that's a mass murder kind of kind of thing going on. But it, it can happen in Boulder and, you know, and, you know, 10 people get shot, but and that's a mass murder, but. 12 people get shot in Chicago and, uh, you know, well, that's Chicago. That's Chirac, you know, the the inequity, the inequities that that the subtle inequities that play themselves out in um, in our communities are something that we need to pay a special attention to. And they wear on the psychic, I believe, of both communities. I mean, you know, how people understand and perceive themselves and perceive one another. Um, I mean, so much that I see now that's taking place, for example, um, with immigration and what's going on on the border. I mean, you know, now the stuff that's been going on the border been going on a long time. It's been going on, it's been happening for a minute. But of late, it seems like, uh, you know, it's blowed up and they're saying, well, it's more than ever that's been coming. I'm saying, but boy, wait a minute now, but it's been going on. I've been talking about, we've been talking about the border since before Trump and before, I mean, we were talking about it before Obama. We were, we've been talking about the border for a minute now. I mean, you know, it's been going on for quite some time. And of late, it's, it's like it just, you know, mushroomed overnight. I'm saying, no, it's been mushrooming for a long time. So it's what we want to uh, draw our attention to and what we want to see and what we want to respond to is 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 the issue and so the question becomes is how do we begin to keep these things in our in, in front of us in terms of the attention that we need to uh, place upon them you know we've been knowing that there's been illegal immigrants in this country for at least a hundred years at least a hundred years i mean folks have been picking you know uh fruit and vegetables and on american farms since the 1900s before the 1900s they've been on those farms for a very long time and they've been coming across the border doing that and we, and we don't talk about stuff like the treaty of Hildago, right <laughs> you know down there in the arizona texas region and stuff like that where we took some land right from some people and so they, their assumption was is that they were coming back to the land that had been unlawfully taken from them. We don't have that conversation. And we're going to have to have that conversation for things to get better uh, in this community, in those communities. But, of course, that's something that we have to continue to work on. Yeah, so we continue to uh, talk about these things in a way in which we want to, people to really understand you know, what's really going on in the world, you know. Uh, and so we want to we get better at our knowledge and our cultural knowledge. You're listening to WVLP, Morning Black, um, Building Leaders in Cultural Knowledge, 103.1 on your FM dial.
Okay, so we're going to end up with a conversation toward the end of uh, Stolen Legacy by George James. He says, now that it has been shown that philosophy and the arts and sciences were bequeathed to civilization by the people of North Africa and not by the people of Greece, 
The pendulum of praise and honor is due to shift from the people of Greece to the people of the African continent who are the rightful heirs of such praise and honor. This is going to mean a tremendous change in world opinion and attitude for all people and races who accept the new philosophy of African redemption, i.e. the truth that the Greeks were not the authors of Greek philosophy, but the people of North Africa would change their opinion from one of disrespect to one of respect for the black people throughout the world and treat them accordingly. It is also going to mean a most important change in the mentality of the black people, a change from inferiority complex to the realization and consciousness of their equality with all the other great peoples of the world who have built great civilizations. With this change in the mentality of black and white people, great changes are also expected in their respective attitudes toward each other and in society as a whole. In the drama of Greek philosophy, there are three actors who have played distinct parts, namely Alexander the Great, who by an act of aggression invaded Egypt in 333 BC and ransacked and looted the royal library at Alexandria, and together with his companions carried off the booty of scientific philosophic and religious books. Egypt was then stolen and annexed as a portion of Alexander's empire, but the invasion plan included far more than more mere territorial expansion, for it prepared the way and made it possible for the capture of the culture of the African continent. This brings us to the second actor, the School of Aristotle. And we get information from that, and in this way the Greeks stole the legacy of the African continent and called it their own. Yep. Yes. And then finally, this notion that um, this erroneous opinion about black people has seriously injured them through the, the centuries up to modern times in which it appears to have reached a, a climax in the history of human relations. And now to we, we come to the third actor, and that is ancient Rome who through its edicts of her emperors, Theodosius in the 4th century AD and Justinian in the 6th century, abolished the mysteries of the African continent. That is the ancient cultural system of the world. The higher metaphysical doctrines of those mysteries could not be comprehended, and the spiritual powers of the priests were unsurpassed. Wow. Well, you've heard it here at Morning Black, and until next time, we will continue our conversations about building leaders in cultural knowledge i'm your host please remember about the central tigray massacre about the murder of martin luther king jr about noah green and the capital attack and finally keep in your mind mr george james and stolen legacy all this is connected in our work as we begin to enliven cultural knowledge in a way that people open their eyes and open their hearts to the real history of us growing together as one people until next time morning black